encourage you to turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21. We are uh, kicking off a new series this morning. Uh, so 1 Samuel chapter 21, we're kicking off a new, or re-kicking off, I guess this is the third part, as you can see, part three. Um, if you're new here this morning, we've, we've been going through and chunking it out in different, uh, different parts of, of the year, uh, portions of the stories of the kings of Israel, which run from the book of 1 Samuel all the way to the book of 2 Kings, and we're we're going to wrap up the book of 1 Samuel in this chunk of our series, in part 3 of this series. Follow with me for a minute, if you will. If you, if you weren't here for the series, if you're new here this morning, we have it on our website, odcc.org. You can hear parts 1 and 2 if you just check out on the website. But let me just quickly summarize what's gone on thus far. Saul has been made king of Israel, been anointed king. Uh, but Saul disobeys the word of God several times, and because of this, God says, I am going to tear the kingdom from you, and you will no longer be the king of Israel. And I'm going to appoint a man after my own heart, and he will obey me. He will follow after me. And so then God sends Samuel the prophet to go and anoint David. So there are two kings in Israel at this time. You have Saul, who everyone understands and sees as king. And then you have David, who's kind of a secret king. He's anointed as a boy, but this last series in part two, we've seen him grow up. And he's become a mighty warrior, a mighty man of God. So much so that Saul sees him without even the anointing, the kingship information to him. Uh, but just sees him as a threat because of his strength, because of his popularity, because of his military prowess. And so he has sought to pin David to a wall twice, right, with spears. You remember this? He keeps on, everybody keeps on giving Saul spears, even though he's a notorious spear thrower. We're wondering, stop giving this guy spears. It's, he's bad news bears. Stop it. But Saul has now chased him out, and so this is a series that focuses on the adventures of David as he wanders about the wilderness, which is kind of, immediately as I was reading these stories, I thought of David as like a gunslinger, like a Clint Eastwood, Roland Deschain, you know, John Wayne, surviving by his grit and his six shooters, is kind of the way that you'll, these stories are, these stories are wild, David functions as a mercenary, and then he's kind of a, he's kind of a, a cowboy, and then he's kind of a bandit in a few places. He's just, he's wild as he is on the run. Ironically, in this story, the first opening story, he is going to run south to Gath. Gath might ring a bell to you. Why should that ring a bell to you if you were here for part two? What happened in Gath or who's from Gath? Goliath, right? Goliath is from Gath. You might know that story. Goliath is giant. First Samuel chapter 17, I think is right. Um, and uh, uh, David slays Goliath, this mighty Philistine. This is all Philistine territory. And so, and David's been fighting Philistines his whole military career. And so he is now, it's this deep sense of irony, he is now running to the one place where he is the most infamous. That's how he's got to, that's how he's, how far Saul has, has pushed him out. So David, the wanderer, is now heading Heading south, this is going to track his, uh, his thing down here. But he's going to stop, and our story here takes place right here in the small area called Nob. He stops there, um, and we read in verse 1 that the priest of Nob, Ahimelech, comes out trembling. Now, you might come out trembling, too, if this dude shows up at your doorstep. 
you might say to yourself, that's one bad hombre. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know about this, guys. I'm a little bit nervous here. I'm a little bit nervous. The priest comes out trembling, and not only because of, of maybe David looked like this, but also because he knows who David is. David is the foremost of all of Saul's warriors. And so something bad is probably on the horizon, right? You don't send your top general just to, just to go and hang out in some place called Nob, right? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. So, remember as well that the tabernacle of the Lord, so why is there a priest coming out from Nob? Well, it's because the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, is there at Nob as well. Now remember with me, and this is, this is kind of testing your Old Testament knowledge here, but remember with me that when the Israelites wanted to get together and worship, they got together and worshiped in a tent. They called it the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. You hear both of those used. Now this was not a Coleman tent. This was a huge, multi-roomed tent. Looked something like this had an outer wall. This is the, your, your court here. They had, you had the actual holy place, which had two sections. This section, the holy place, which um, the people would enter into, the priest could enter into. And then the holy of holies, where the priest only entered into one time a year. This is at Nob, which is why the priest comes out to speak to him. David then speaks to the priest And he says there in verse 2, The king has charged me with a matter, saying, Let no one know about this this, uh, thing which I am sending you to do, with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men, so his other soldiers, for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I don't have any common bread, um, but only the holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels, that is sort of the bodies, of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? Because, you know, we're making haste. So the priest gave him the bread, for there was no bread but there, uh, there but the bread of the presence. So again, the holy bread, sometimes called the bread of presence, sometimes called the show bread, which was removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now there was a certain man, one of the servants of Saul here. Here we have some foreshadowing for the future. His name was Dug the Edomite. He was a chief of Saul's herdmen. No more has told us about this. It's sort of, you know, this is telling you maybe what will happen next week. Then David said to Ahimelech, uh, do you have a spirit or a sword? Because I I brought neither because I was on the king's business and it required haste. And the priest said, well, I only have the sword of Goliath, who you killed. And David said, that one's rad. I'll take it. (laughs) Now, this whole exchange makes a lot of logical sense to us. David's on the run. He stops off because he needs supplies, right? Everybody's, anybody been, been camping any, you know, like this, this is, it might take me a few slides to get there, but 
this is some distance, right? Y'all been camping, you know you need some, like, you need some food. You need things for the trip. And so he stops off, and he, he gets that food. And, and then he says, you know, do you have a weapon? And yeah, I have a weapon. Um, we just have, we, we're priests, so we don't have a bunch of armaments. We just have this one thing that's a special kind of relic-y thing and, uh, of remembering your victory. And so you can take that. All of that makes sense except for all of the talk about the showbread and the ladies, Right? This is weird. The Bible is often weird. I dare you to read the Old Testament and walk away saying, not saying, huh, that's kind of weird. Like, lots of weird things are happening in this text, and I think it's cool. And I want to talk about it. What is the holy bread? Like, what does that look like? What, is, what makes bread holy? What makes bread the presence? Of, like, what, what, what? Obviously, it's not that, but that is exactly what I thought of when I was reading the text. What makes the bread holy? Well, well, again, we talked about the tabernacle. You've got this tabernacle here, and the priests are, are leading worship in God. And it, within the tabernacle, in the outer court, and then inside the Holy of Holies, there were certain elements that were to draw the Israelites' mind into deeper worship of God. And if we kind of take a zoom in, this is sort of inside, so... This right here, this right here. And you had on this table something they would call showbread, the bread of presence. You have different words used of it, holy bread. What is the showbread? What is the bread of presence? Well, Leviticus 24 tells us this. You shall take, so this is laws concerning how they are to set things up within, within the tabernacle itself. So how are we supposed to set things up in here? He gives us some, from the, Moses gave us the information from the Lord. You shall take fine flour, bake it into 12 loaves, and you shall take the two piles of those 12 loaves, six in each pile, on a table of pure gold before the Lord, and you shall put frankincense, so this would have been probably oil mixed with frankincense, sort of like, you ever put like honey on biscuits or something like that? It's kind of the idea of putting something smelly and delicious on top of these six piles of bread. Pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a, remo- as a memorial portion of food offering to the Lord. Now this all sounds weird to us because we don't really do anything like this when we worship God today. But it is incredibly important. It is a part of God's word to the people. If God said, hey guys, this is what I want you to do, would we be willing to do it? That was pretty pathetic. I sure hope that we like, absolutely we'd be willing to do it and we will make sure to do it with rigorous precision. Right? We will do exactly what you have said. And this is what the priests have done. Why? What is this about? Well, stick with me for a second. As Israel exists, all around them, there are other religions. There are other gods. In fact, what we see oftentimes inside of the books of the Old Testament, and even within the books of the New Testament, though we don't recognize it, there is a battle of gods. God versus Baal. God versus Dagon. God versus Molech. God versus these other gods. And what everyone did at those t- in those days is they would take food and they would set it in front of the idol. Why do you think they did that? <laughs> good, good Western answer. No idea. Why would you do that? And we have no idea why, because we are materialists. Even those of you here who are Christians are materialists. The world is made out of material, and that's it. They believed the gods came down and ate that food. 
You put food in front of the idol because the idol would eat, or the god would come down and eat through the idol. In fact, when they made idols, they hollowed out the mouths and the eyes. Why? Because the spirit of the god indwelt the idol itself. Now, with that in mind, in fact, in fact, this really isn't even that foreign. I was listening on the radio um, last week, I think it was, and they were talking about how in the Philippines, people will take uh, a strawberry Fanta. You ever had strawberry Fanta? Disgusting, vile stuff. Oh, Orange Fanta, yes. Strawberry Fanta, no. And grape, oh, even worse. That probably attracts bad spirits. But they believed... And today, there's this huge industry of selling strawberry Fanta because they put it in a bowl and they set it out, believing that it will attract, I would imagine it mostly attracts flies, but it will attract evil, or, or evil, attract good spirits to them and will sort of bless their, like this idea is all across the world. Now, this is an important point. Is Israel doing exactly what all of the other religions in the world are doing? See, now, if, if, this, if, this, if this is false, there is no God in Israel, what should we expect? We should expect this. And yet, this is not entirely what is being said here. This isn't what they're getting at. Because there is no belief in early Israelites that you could, like, peek inside the tent of meeting and, oh, look, there's God. He stopped off at the table so he could have a little snack. He got a little hungry. And there he is, eating cookies and milk like Santa. Why? How do we know this isn't what they believe? Because, wow, it says so in the Bible. What does it say here? And it shall be. What shall be? The bread of presence. What are they going to do with the bread of presence? It will be for Aaron and his sons. Because what happens when the bread is done on the table? You need to eat it. The priests need food. And most of the sacrifices that were sacrificed within the temple were sacrifices to God, but they didn't believe God came down and nibbled on that stuff, making shish kebabs off the altar or something. No, that went to the priests to provide for the priests. So the bread of presence was for the priests as food. This was belonging to them, which to me is an indication that there is something. If you're here today and you're skeptical and you say, man, I'm not so sure, there's a lot of weird stuff in the Bible. Granted, granted, granted. It's only weird, though, because we stand 2,000 years apart from it. Not weird because it's not true. What we find again and again and again in scriptures is what we should not expect to find. We should expect them to have an idol. We should expect them to say, this idol eats the bread of presence. And yet they say again and again, no, this, isn't, this is just bread. It's going for the people. It's going for the priests, for Aaron and his sons. So why have the bread at all? Why does it matter? Twelve loaves and two piles. What should twelve draw our minds to? The tribes. We call this the bread of presence. Who might want to be present with the tribes? The Lord God, who dwells the, all of the tribes when they had celebrations, holy days, would line, and I've talked about this many times, would line up around the temple, around the tabernacle. Why? Because God wanted to dwell in their midst. What does the bread, what does the show bread, what does the bread of presence do? It reminds the Israelites that God wants to be 
in your presence. Even so much as to say, you are my treasured possession. Exodus 19, 5 says, you are my treasured possession among all the peoples. For the earth is mine, but you, Israel, you shall be to me, the God of all the world, a kingdom of priests, a holy and set apart nation from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, we see God with one desire. And that is to have a restored earth where he might walk with his people. Genesis 1 and 2, God is doing what? Walking in the garden, calling out, Adam, where are you? Why have you hidden yourself for me? Fast forward all the way. So we're going from here all the way to here, what do we read in Revelation 21? That God is in their midst, and because he is in their midst, he wipes away every tear from their eye. God wants to dwell with his people. And this bread of presence is a physical reminder, look, look, God wants to be, wants to dwell with you. And this should draw our minds to something incredibly important something that we have already done this morning. Can you imagine what it is? When did we break bread? When did we take drink? When did we commune at the Lord's, you know what we call that? What do we call that? The Lord's table, Lord's supper, Lord's table. Isn't it fascinating? And sometimes this is, this is a partly, partly a great sin of our movement, uh, is that we sort of set the Old Testament aside because we're New Testament Christians. But I want you to see the incredible consistency of God from the book of Leviticus all the way to Jesus breaking bread with his apostles. How many apostles were there again? I forgot. Twelve. How many pieces of bread are on the table again? I forgot. What are those supposed to remind us of again? I, I forgot. The tribes, God's presence with his people. And here comes Jesus, God in flesh, walking amongst 12 disciples. He sits down at a table. He takes a piece of bread. He rips it in part. And he says, you remember me. You remember me. You remember his first appearance to those on the road to Emmaus? He's walking with them. He's talking with them. And they're talking about Jesus. And and Jesus says, oh, hey, what are you all talking about? And they say, where have you been? Like, we had a riot. Where'd you, were you not here for the riot? They're going crazy, crucified. And, they talk. and Jesus says, you dolts, you not read the Old Testament? Didn't talk about me suffering? Didn't talk about me? And they, they still don't, they, they don't recognize Jesus, even though they say later on, we, we felt our hearts burning as he was talking to us. And then they sit down at the table. You remember this? They sit down at the table with Jesus. Jesus is, they don't recognize him. He's veiled from their faces. And then Jesus picks up a piece of bread and what does he do? Breaks it. And what do they do? Recognize Jesus. God's presence. But I don't want you to forget this. Because as we took part in communion today it was a symbol it causes us to remember but remember what jesus said no i even had slides for that i'm sorry look at that right here jesus says i tell you the truth i will not drink the fruit of the vine as he's sitting with his disciples until i drink it new with you in my father's kingdom when we partake of this it is 
still a foreshadowing. You see how in the Old Testament that bread of presence was a foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do and to give not only to his own 12 tribes but to all the Gentiles, you and me. All the world is invited to to the table of the Lord, to the table of the Lord, to see the bread and to remember God's presence. Everyone is invited to it. But still, even today, this is a foreshadow of what will be when Jesus returns and the table is set up. They call it the wedding feast of the Lamb or the feast of Abraham. And we eat with God. That's immense. That's immense. Notice the priest's concern, though, in this story. Isn't it bizarre? I've got this bread. It's holy. It's meant for us, right? It's, 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 it's to us. It's to the priests. But I can give it to you, except for what? If you've been with the lady. Which, I think, our immediate answer is, well, that's none of your business, right? I think that'd be maybe what David would say. And yet, um, the Old Testament laws uh, speak about how if one were to lay with another, uh, if a husband lays with his wife, the two become unholy for a day. So uh, it says, the next evening they're holy again if they wash themselves and they wash their clothes. Now, this probably seems, again, weird. I grant that, right? Again, we all agree the Old Testament has weird stuff in it. Seems odd to us. We, we don't get this. And partly that's because within the New Testament, we don't have anything like that. We don't talk about that kind of thing. We don't have sacramental or, or ritualistic processes where we need to worry about getting to God. We have to worry about all of the incidental um, washings and rituals that would need to go on. But I want you to notice why that is. Now, again, notice here, David sleeping with Michal, his, his wife, you know, in Ramah before he left and maybe headed to Nath. Would that have been sin? No, right? All the husbands should be like, amen, right? That is not sin. That is good. Um, it is not wrong at all. It would have been fine for him to do it. It would have been a part of marital living. Uh, and so this isn't talking about holiness within the sense of sin, moral iniquity. It is talking about ritualistic situations. If you want to get to God in the Old Testament, there are just layers of separation. Now, why are there layers of separation? Because God is holy other. He is not like you. He is not like me. He is completely other. His otherness is so intense that if a husband and wife do something which God says, go ahead and do, enjoy one another, I have given this to you as a gift, the next day you have to wait before you go into God's presence. That is the otherness of God. And we say to ourselves, I think frequently, that's not the God of the Bible. We do it not with words, but in practicality. We could give thanks to God that this is no longer something that we have to do. So what, what does this all lead to? It leads to things. Four things. Four points. First, God wants to be in the presence of his people. Okay? That's what the showbread, that's what the bread of present tells us. God wants to be in the presence of his people. If you are going to be in God's presence, God demands holiness. 
God demands holiness. And this word means both set-apartness and virtue, morality, ethics. Within the Old Testament, because of the specificity and otherness and holiness of God, the Israelites had to go through all kinds of ritualistic washings, cleansings, and observations if they wanted God's attention and blessing. Fourthly, Jesus, because of his great grace upon the cross, has not only crucified sin, but he has also crucified the law, the the, the ritualistic aspects that we no longer as believers need to go through. And everyone uh, who's male and knows what circumcision is, right, should say amen on that. Like, there are some very good points that are happening right here. And our conclusion could possibly be we should give thanks to God, but our conclusion, I think, would be wrong in this day and age. My conclusion is this, the modern Christian is in terrible, terrible danger. Terrible, terrible danger. I have actually been just broken this week with a level of terrible, terrible danger that we are in. Because the Israelites, imagine this, you got a tabernacle, you got a temple, and it is operating with priests and their people and there's all this commotion going on. And you want to pray to God. You want a blessing from God. You need God's attention. And you have to say to yourself, honey, we can't sleep together. I gotta make sure that I'm ritualistically clean. I need to make sure that I've washed. I need to make sure I bring the right kind of sacrifice. I need to make sure that the priest can take care of that. I need to make sure that that happens. I need to make sure that I haven't wronged anyone. I need to make sure of all of these things. How holy would you think God is? And how seriously would you take God were you to have to go through all those hoops to get to him? But now, because of Jesus, we have such an incredible opening of access and mercy and grace. What do we do? We treat God like he is one of us. And God is absolutely not one of us. It's interesting that sexuality is the thing that comes out in this text And that this is the thing that our society is absolutely obsessed with today. It's interesting that this is the basis of lawsuits. This is the basis of conflict. This is the basis of Supreme Court decisions. This is the basis of all kinds of fights, litigations, church fractures, denominations coming after one another. You know what made the Jews weird in the ancient world? They believed that a man and a woman could get married and would be there for the rest of their lives. And everyone around them said, y'all are nuts. Which I think is kind of ironic. Because I think America, either today or tomorrow, or especially in the next few years, will say, y'all are nuts. Which puts us firmly in the footing of Jesus in the early Days. I have watched Christians cave left and right to pressure on this. Young men, young ladies, your world is going to tell you something that is absolutely untrue. 
Your music is telling you something that is untrue. Your news is telling you that something that is untrue. Your government is telling you something that is untrue. Everyone around you is telling you something that is untrue. And this probably doesn't make me popular, but I've never been popular, so that's not a big deal. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us something terrifying. And if you leave with nothing else today, please... Leave with this. God is not like you. His priorities are not your priorities. His priority is the salvation of your eternal life. And so he has given to the apostles words that tell you something about how to achieve eternal life. One of them is this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Why? Because that day and age, there was more deception than there is in our day. If you think this is anything, man, go back and live in Rome. Those people were crazy. Today is nothing. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor those who put something in the place that only God belongs. That could be anything. That could be soccer. Nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. That includes most television evangelists. Will inherit the kingdom of God. There is no punches pulled with this. There are people who are going to hell because of the choices that they make. We have young people living together. That is sin. Your soul is in jeopardy. We have young people watching pornography. We have old people watching pornography. That is sin. And your soul is in danger. Anything outside of what is written here, one man, one woman, for life, in in committed covenantal marriage, is sin. And your soul is in danger. Notice what the priest says here. Just, Just notice for a second. This priest says, I I can't give you this bread, David, because I'm afraid that you stopped at home to have relations with your wife and you did not wait the requisite amount of time for me to give you bread. That's how seriously I take the living God. Do we in any way live up to that? And my object here is not to guilt anyone. I no interest in guilting anyone. My object is that I... I am afraid. I am afraid that there are people who are going to hell in this room who don't know it. And if nothing else, you leave here today knowing that you have to make a choice. You have to choose this day who you will serve. Will it be God? 
in all of his holiness and purity? Or will it be your own desires? And my plea for you this morning is that you will not heed your desires, but you would hear the word of God. It terrified this priest. My other, my other hope is that those of you here today who, man, I talk about sexual immorality all day, and you're like, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. You will notice all these other things. And you will say to yourself, this is a holy God I have come to. And he's only made holier because of Jesus. God has shed his own blood to buy you at that price. How much holier ought we to be in light of that than all of these Israelites who knew how to make checklists? That's nothing. That's nothing. We come before a living God. We should come before him with honor, respect, with fear. Not the fear that keeps us back, not the fear of like horror movies or ghosts, not the fear of false religions and deities, not the fear that God is capricious and just wants to smite you. God loves you, but he demands you comport to his will. He will not comport to yours. He will not comport to yours. And this terrifies me because I am certainly not perfect. And Scott heard my confession and prayed for me today, one of our elders. And we need to do more of that. We need to take God more seriously than we have. You know, this is a great list. I mean, this is a great list. God wants to be in the presence of you. Of you. The God of the universe who, who made all things wants to be in your presence. And so he, he made the, commanded the showbread so that the Israelites would see it. And he gave us Jesus so we could experience it. And he gives us the promise of the future where we will actually do it because of his great love and desire to be with us. Because of that, God demands holiness. The Old Testament gave us that holiness. Jesus removed all of those, all of those barriers and says there is one door. One door. And on the door frame it says Grace. But don't think that that's a two-way door. When you go through it, it locks behind you. And believers, I'm talking to believers here in this morning. Believers, you need to believe that. You need to live that. Because this is a fearsome word. The modern Christian is in mortal danger, but I don't believe that that's the end. I think the hero of this story, if I can give you a hero in this story, because often when we read, um, when we read stories about David, David's always the hero. And I just, this is a little secret as we go on, David's almost never the hero. <laughs> David is deeply flawed, um, deeply flawed. There's often people around him who say, David, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. 
And so who is the hero of this story? I think the hero is the priests. This would be my conclusion. We need to be like the priests. We need to not look to this guy. We need to be more like this guy. Right? We need to be people. That's a joke. But that's a really awesome outfit. And when I think of priests, I always think of that outfit. That, joking aside, joking aside, you aren't called to be like David running to Gath. You're called to be like the priests. The priest who says, I mean, this guy shows up at your door and says, you got any bread? And you say to him, are you holy enough? Where does that strength come from? Where did that strength go? When did we give up this word that you are a nation? Peter says this in in echoing Exodus 19. I read that earlier. God speaking to his people, the Israelites. He says it to them. And Peter echoes it again just in case you forgot and hadn't read Exodus in a while. That's okay. Peter reiterates it for you. He says, you are a kingdom. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You don't own yourself, and the world certainly doesn't own you. You are owned by God. You are called to be the ones who are out there, and you are speaking the truth. And it doesn't matter whether they stone you or laud you, whether they give you an award or fire you. You are a priest, and we need to live like it. Not just speak like it, live like it. They should see Christians and say, those people are an odd bunch. Their priorities are not our priorities. Their commitments are not our commitments. Their books are not our books. Their movies are not our movies. Their music is not our music. They are weird. And yet they continue to come in amongst us and share their oddness. And then they do one of two things. You ready? They join you or crucify you. They join you or crucify you. And Jesus says, be ready for it. My call then today, church, let us be priests. Let's stand as we sing.